Welcome to Tripod, Improve Photography's Nature Photography Podcast. This show is for the weekend photo warriors, the HDR debaters, and the sharpness obsessors. This is Tripod. Hey guys, welcome back to Tripod. This week we're going to be taking some listener questions from off of the Facebook group. If you haven't already joined the Facebook group, go over to Facebook and do a search for Tripod Podcast Listeners. And it's a really great place for us all to kind of communicate, ask questions, uh, post photos that we've been taking. And just a great way for us all to interact. Before we get into the show, I did want to let you guys know that I have some workshops that are almost full. And I want you guys to have kind of first dibs before they all fill up. First of which I have Iceland. I'm leading two workshops in Iceland this year. Both almost completely full. I only have one spot left. So if you want to go to Iceland with me, you better jump on it because it's almost full. Uh, Secondly, we've got the Oregon Coast Workshop. Uh, We've only got like five spots there. I'm also leading a Wildflowers and Waterfalls Workshop. That's going to be in the end of April. And I've got, I think, three spots left for that one. So that one is actually pretty cool because it's going to be the most affordable of the entire year. If you want to photograph some of the really beautiful waterfalls in the Pacific Northwest, that's an excellent opportunity. So we've got that. We've got Oregon Coast. And all of that is available over at nickpagephotography.com. Go to the workshops panel and you can see them all there. Okay, so first question this week is from Annalise Spencer, my significant other. She says, among all the gadgets that you own, is there something that you wish you had not bought? I feel like there's several of those. I think this could be an entire episode, actually, of things that great buys and buys that I regret. But Um, one of my regrets is definitely the Faisal tripod. I had so many issues with that and I've kind of documented it pretty well over the last few months, but that was just a huge, huge ball of money that I don't have anything to show for. Really. I have a tripod that is just really frustrating to use. But having said that Faisal did get in touch with me and they said that they have redesigned the top plate area and fixed the issue. So uh, they're going to be sending me a new tripod once that the uh, the new parts are coming available and they said that it should be fixed. So I'm really excited to test that out I because it was a great tripod. I loved using it when it functioned properly. It was really, really light. It was big. It was beefy, but it just didn't work. <laughs> so uh, funny thing about tripods, you need them to work. But anyways, I'm hopeful that that's completely solved the problem that and I would say the Nero trigger that I had purchased for the sake of the of triggering for lightning. I bought the Nero trigger and it's supposed to trigger your camera when it sees lightning or it does actually a whole bunch of different functions. And I've taken it out several times to different lightning shoots when lightning was just going off and it was either so sensitive that it was triggering the camera all the time and just the ambient light was setting it off or it was not sensitive enough and the lightning wasn't triggering the camera. It posed all kinds of problems and I missed tons of shots for it. It just never worked the way I wanted to. I'm excited to try out the lightning trigger and that's the actual name of it, the lightning trigger. I'm excited to try that out this year because the Nero just did not work. Brian Horn asked tips for finding photography time during family trips. And it seems like a lot of people are interested in that. So when I go on family trips, when I take Annalise and my son Zane, 
typically sunrise is not an issue. They stay in the hotel and I go out and I shoot sunrise and I'm back about the time that they're ready for breakfast. Uh, sunrise is really easy to, to get away. Sunsets, typically they will either go with me or I will let them go hang out at the hotel and swim in the swimming pool while I go out and photograph sunset. But as you guys know, sometimes sunset can be a very long photo shoot. You know, you're there for an hour and a half before sunset, there for an hour and a half after sunset. A lot of times you're just better off bring them and, you know, have your family in the area and then you kind of go off and do your own thing. All families are so different though. You know, sometimes the wife is just not having the hikes that you have to do, or you have really young children that it's just not safe to take them places like that. It can be really challenging, but that's what I do is I typically leave them at the hotel at sunrise or leave them in the tent if we're camping. And then for sunset, I either take them with me or I kind of venture out on my own and I, you know, send them to a movie if there's a near debt by town or something. Um, typically that's how I handle it. Kyle asks, what was the worst flop of a photography trip and how did you recover from it on the fly? Well, uh, this past weekend was actually a flop for me. That that's the thing is not all trips are going to be incredibly fruitful. They're just not. Sometimes mother nature will not give you what you need to make a good photograph. And the trick is to be okay with that. That's a really hard thing for me is I, sometimes if I'm not getting good photos, I get really upset by it, but you just have to keep in mind that not every trip is going to be super fruitful and you have to be okay with that because those trips that don't yield very many good photos, those make the trips where you do get a whole bunch of good photos feel a whole lot better. A lot of times if the weather is not cooperating or I go on this trip and it just isn't very fruitful, I try to look at it as a scouting mission. You know, if I go somewhere and I don't get good photos because the light's bad, I treat it like a scouting mission and I think to myself, okay, well, I will just remember all of this and I'll come back sometime and I will get good photos. So for example, I drove all the way to Montana this weekend, which, you know, is only like a five hour drive for me. And I drove up near Glacier and it was just so cloudy and rainy that I couldn't get any kind of good landscape photos. So I switched over to focusing on just trying to find wildlife. It was really overcast, couldn't had kind of poor visibility, but it was still good for wildlife. So I kind of just changed my focus into photographing wildlife because the landscape shots just weren't happening. And I really didn't come home with very many good photos. I got my best photos from the trip about a half hour from home on the day I left and the day I returned, but that's okay. I just treated it like a scouting mission. I got to travel and see a new place. And I really love just, you know, exploring new places, places I've never been. That way I can kind of check it off the list. And if I ever go back, I have a little bit of local knowledge and that's going to help me in the future. If I ever go back there for a landscape photography trip, Thomas asked so far, which do you prefer TK actions five Raya pro 2.0 or Lumenzia 3.0. So as some of the people that follow me on Facebook know, I'm getting ready to do a luminosity mask panel head-to-head -head comparison where I'm going to be comparing Lumenzia, TK Actions, Raya Pro, and Zone System Express. It takes so long to learn all these different panels. I've, I've used Raya Pro and I've used uh, TK Actions 4 
in the past. So I'm familiar with those, but Lumenzia is completely new to me. Zone System Express is completely new to me, and I want to get familiar enough with them that I can give them a fair, you know, shake. Right out of the gate, I feel like Raya Pro is probably the most user-friendly. It's got a lot of basic actions that help you if you don't know how to use luminosity masks yet. Lumenzia is a very simple interface. If you do know how to use luminosity masks, it's very simple and clean. TK Actions still looks a bit like a scientific calculator. Uh, it's just got so many different things that it can do. It can be a little overwhelming. But in my opinion, so far, once you learn it, it's also the fastest and most powerful. And Zone System Express, I actually haven't dove into just yet, uh, but I plan on giving that a fair chance. I definitely feel like each panel is a little different. They all have you know, their pros and their cons. It's too early to tell right now yet, but stay tuned for that. I'll be putting that up on the YouTube channel, a nice comparison video of all four of them. Rob asks, who are your top five landscape photographers and what is it that you like about their style? Hmm. So I would say top five. I got to go with Mark Adamus. Mark Adamus's work is just so epic. He is the king of epic. He, he is definitely one of the first to really be... Uh, this kind of new wave of dramatic, epic light, epic location, like just putting all of these different um, really extreme conditions together to to create just really surreal, amazing photography. So Mark Adamus, definitely top of that list. Enrico Fassati for his mood. He is the king of mood. Uh, his work is very stylized, but it's just got such feeling and mood. So I love that. Art Wolf, I absolutely love his wildlife photography and his sense of um, his work just has a graphic nature. When I think of Art Wolf's best work, it's not so much his landscape photography, but it's definitely his wildlife photography. He is able to capture not only really, really well composed images, but he, they all have this uh, graphic nature to them. Uh, it's just, it's kind of hard to describe, but his work just is so good, <laughs> especially his wildlife photography, because he's able to inject emotion into his shots. And I love that about his work. And then next, I would have to say Alex Noriega. His work is just so clean. And I love some of his more abstract shots that are less obvious. He doesn't just go to a location and shoot the obvious shot and try to do it better than everybody. A lot of his work is more abstracty. It's like, you know, textures of mountains and little vignettes of vegetation. And his post-processing is just really, really well done. And then Ryan Dyer. I think Ryan Dyer is, has got to be on this list because his work is so dramatic. And again, dramatic and epic. And, and he's got the dark moody thing just nailed. Ryan Dyer is really good about uh, creating and controlling light and his subjects are just always really dramatic and really epic. I really love his work. Bastian asks your favorite lenses for landscape photography and which focal range do you like for which object? Uh, my two favorite lenses are definitely my 16 to 35 version three Canon and my 70 to 300 L from Canon. The reason I like those two lenses is there is that gap between them, 
but I'm covering a huge focal range with just two lenses. And if I feel like I need something in between those two, I will take my 70 to 300 and then do a vertical panorama and it pretty much covers that focal range. As far as which lens for which subject, well, obviously when I'm sh I have a big wide shot that I wanna shoot, I shoot with my 16 to 35. Anytime I have an interesting foreground, Typically, that's when I like to shoot wide angle because wide angle lenses exaggerate your foreground. Anytime that it's more about uh, compressing the scene or uh, really isolating a single subject, I love to use the 70 to 300. That's when I'm shooting like mountain peaks or little landscape vignettes. Um, I love the 70 to 300 for that. Chad Foster asks, what is your top five places that are still on your bucket list to shoot at? Okay, so I would have to say Patagonia. Patagonia is amazing for their mountain peaks. Norway is right at the top of my list right now. Norway is this really interesting blend of dramatic landscapes and interesting little villages lots and lots of water features to shoot and you're so far north that you get aurora borealis in the winter time lots of snow it's a very rugged land so norway's right up there scotland for the castles i love castles i love old history so scotland is right up there i would also say that old italy like i would love to photograph uh, old roman ruins and also i'd love to go to the dolomites in italy so italy just in general, Italy is one of them. And while I've been to Hawaii several times, I, I usually go to Kauai. Kauai is my favorite island, but I have never got to photograph the lava that is happening right now in Hawaii. So I would love to go uh, photograph the, all the volcanic stuff that's happening in Hawaii. I've never done that. And that's at the top of my list as well. Scott Carpenter asks, what advice do you have regarding settings for environments with lots of water and ice? I'm a relative beginner to DSLR photography, and I'm going on a trip to Antarctica next year. I'm looking for advice relevant to that kind of environment, such as white balance, light metering in the snow, etc. So when you're photographing ice, obviously the most important thing is going to be sharpness. Uh, you need to make sure that you're keeping your shutter speeds up, especially if you're shooting from a boat. That means that you are moving and your subject is moving as well. That means that tripods are pretty much going to not help you at all. You need to keep your shutter speed up. Um, so, you know, stick around the F8 area, get enough depth of field, but keep your shutter speed up. As far as light metering and snow conditions, typically about a stop overexposed is about right for that. I shoot in manual as, as most people know, but typically if you're shooting in an automatic mode and you're using um, exposure compensation, you're going to want to dial in about a stop, maybe two thirds of a stop uh, to make sure that you're exposing the snow enough. If you're shooting on a tripod and you're shooting in live view, you know, just eyeball it, expose it and have your highlight alert on that way if you are overexposing your highlights you're going to get those blinkies and it's going to warn you because the last thing you want to do is overexpose any of those bright textures because you won't be able to get those back also when you're shooting ice sometimes cloudy days are better than sunny days the reason for that is because the only color that is left in your scene is going to be the color of that ice when we were photographing the iceberg lagoon in Iceland, we had a whole bunch of different cloudy days that we were there, unfortunately, like the weather was not very good to us, but it made 
the lagoon really nice to shoot because the only color that was left in the scene was the beautiful color of the ice. Same will be true when you're down in Antarctica. Cloudy days or those moments right after the sun has gone down, those are going to be great for letting the color of that ice really stand out. Sometimes polarizers can help bring out a little bit of extra saturation in that ice, but typically on a cloudy day, a polarizer isn't going to do a whole lot. Okay, Michelle asks, what ways can you make money as a landscape photographer? That is kind of the question of the year. <laughs> Everybody wants to know that. It is the tough, it's a tough one because landscape photography is not the easiest thing in the world to monetize. You can obviously sell fine art prints, if you can find a way of getting your prints in front of eyes, that's a great way of doing it. Uh, throwing prints up for sale on your website is a nice passive way of creating a little extra income. Uh, another thing that like uh, we've kind of talked about it in the past, teaching workshops should probably be reserved for those people that are you know, really knowledgeable and good at speaking and talking photography and, and also a good teacher. But if you have a lot of local knowledge in your area, there's a difference between leading a workshop and being a photography guide. You know, an idea would be that if you have a lot of a lot of local knowledge in your local area, that doesn't mean that you couldn't start up a photography guide service where somebody is coming from out of town. They don't really necessarily want anybody teaching them photography. They just want somebody to take them to good spots. If you have a lot of local knowledge like that, you could set up little one-on-one -on -one photography guide services where you charge a certain amount per day and take people to local spots. That's not something that you need to be an amazing photography teacher for. So that's another way as well. But keep in mind when you're doing stuff like that, a lot of times areas need you to be licensed to do that. Um, any kind of state park national park a lot of times you have to get a license to do any kind of guiding in their area brian pecks asked tips for making images better with less than great light i kind of shift gears when the light gets bad like when i say bad light i mean either empty blue skies or really overcast, cloudy, gray, yucky skies. When it's really overcast and gray, that's a good time to do things like, you know, macro photography or little uh, landscape vignettes like we're talking about. If the sky sucks, just don't include it in your shot. If you're in a wooded area, that's a great time to do foresty type shots when it, the light is very flat and gray. When you go inside those forests, you're not going to have that really harsh contrast that can make it really difficult to photograph those kind of scenes. Also, when it's flat and gray, the sky becomes a large softbox. So anything down on the ground, if you have interesting flowers or, you know, vegetation, stuff like that. It's going to photograph really well. So if the sky is not not ideal, I just don't ever include the sky. And I try to find interesting textures and details to photograph. If I do get one of those bluebird days where there's just not a cloud and the sky is completely empty, uh, sunset is not going to be good. Midday is not going to be good, but what is going to be good is those those moments after the sun goes down. Uh, twilight looks great on an empty sky day when the you know the sky starts to turn that really deep purple and then the stars start popping out. That can be a great time to photograph whatever scene you have is wait for that sun to go down, wait for things to start going purple 
that twilight i like photographing on those empty sky days preston asks what is your current filter system so i have switched over to using nothing but breakthrough photography filters i've always really liked them and i reached out to them and they actually sent me a couple of free filters so i'm not really sponsored by them but they've definitely <laughs> they've definitely sent me some free stuff so take that for what what it what it is um I like to think that I don't have a biased opinion, but I really like breakthrough photography filters because there's very little color cast. They have a really nice grip to the filter. They don't get stuck on your lens like some other filters do. They're very thin, so you can stack them and not run into as much vignetting. I just really, really like breakthrough photography filters. Okay, the last question is, which one should I get? A used Nikon 14 to 24, a new Tamron 15 to 30, or a new Nikon 16 to 35? And how much importance should I put on the filters for landscape photography when you're dealing with these bulbous lenses? Filters are a big deal when you're dealing with these big bulbous front elements because you can no longer thread a filter on there. That's going to make both the 14 to 24 and the 15 to 30 very expensive to get filters for. Between those three, I would probably go with the Tamron 15 to 30. I like that focal range a little bit better. 15 to 30 feels like you've zoomed significantly more than 14 to 24. Tamron gets great reviews for the uh, image quality and the build quality. Me personally, I would just go with the Tamron 15 to 30. And yeah, you are going to need to get some kind of filter system because for landscape photography, it's not so much about circular polarizers, but for me, I could not live without ND filters. There's so many times when you're photographing water that you just cannot get the shutter speed that you want. And an ND filter is going to allow you to do that. So in that case, I would probably look at Wonderpana for my filter system. I don't hear great things about the Lee filter system as far as color cast and, you know, just the cost. Um, but I will mention the breakthrough photography is going to be coming out with a new filter system for those large square filters. So that's exciting. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. Remember that if you're interested in any of those workshops, you can go over to nickpagephotography.com and you can find all the information there. If you're interested in going with me to Iceland this year, you're running out of time. We only have one spot left and would love to have you along for that. Also, if you want to connect with me on social media, you can go over to Instagram and do a search for Nick Page Photography. You can do a search for Majid and you'll find Majid Badazadigan, or you can do a search for Jim Harmer over on Instagram and you'll find him there as well. All right. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you in another seven days. Bye-bye.